Hi, my name is Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I am delighted to be joined today by one of the most experienced leaders in the world of legal operations. Anne Trotter is Senior Director of Operations for the Office of the General Counsel at Hearst. Anne, thank you so much for joining me. Alex, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here and a big fan. Let's start at the beginning, Anne. Why did you decide to study art, culture, and intellectual history at Brain? I was a ballet dancer, dancing 40 hours a week, starting at age 14. And Brown was a community that had very strong cross-disciplinary research explorations and conversations among the faculty and students. They also had an open curriculum that eschewed disciplinary requirements, allowed you to choose what you wanted to do, and also allowed for independent concentrations. I did not know that about you, Anne, that you were a ballet dancer. You are the second dancer we've had on the podcast. Elizabeth Rancourt-Smith at Tilson was also a dancer in a previous life. I'm interested to understand, did you have a career path in mind when you were in college? Were you thinking about a a professional career as a, a ballet dancer or something else? Well, not as a ballet dancer. I'm much too tall, but I was thinking of being a contemporary dancer. And my plan was to graduate, move to New York, dance for 20 years, and then when I could no longer dance, find something else to do. Was that the kind of first step for you then after college, or or what was your first job? I actually injured myself in college and was coping with that, still trying to dance, but I got a full scholarship to study performance studies and cultural anthropology in New York, and so I jumped at the opportunity to move to New York. My first job actually was the summer between college and moving to New York, where I worked as a supply captain for a caterer who was manning the events at the Democratic National Convention held at the Carter Presidential Center in Atlanta, where I'm from. So operations, different discipline. Absolutely. And those kind of early experiences can be really formative and insightful. And then when you finished your studies in New York, what was your first kind of step on the career ladder after that? Well, I had to work my way through graduate school and mostly I was working in arts administration. So I worked for Paul Taylor, Jacques D'Amboise, Martha Clark, a number of different New York-based choreographers, primarily also the New York International Festival of the Arts. And then I also had one job in law as a weekend receptionist at Crevasse, Swain, and Moore. So that was my second legal position. My first in high school had been at Rogers and Hardin in Atlanta, where I'd been hired to be a clerk for the summer and ended up serving as the law librarian when the staff law librarian went on maternity leave. Were there any mentors that played an important role in your development at that stage in your life? My father is an attorney and he was a corporate securities attorney. He was the managing partner of several firms and he was perhaps the first person to teach on the business of law at Emory University. And so of course he was my most important mentor in what I do now from our dinner conversations, he would say to me, 
that the law profession is going to be transformed in the 21st century by legal operations professionals and corporate law departments. And he convinced me. And so eventually when I turned away from dance and the arts and, and my other not-for-profit career, it is entirely due to him that I'm doing what I do today. Throughout my life, I've had wonderful mentors in dance and in my not-for-profit career and in college. I've been very lucky in that department. It sounds like your dad was way ahead of his time, incredibly forward thinking. My dad is also a lawyer. I'm not sure even now today, he's a full understanding of what legal department operations entails, but, but that's incredible that you had that guidance and that person that you could, you could call upon, who I'm sure has been incredibly useful to you over your successful career in legal operations. You then joined the Rockefeller Foundation. How did your role there evolve? I know you spent over 10 years there. Yeah, so before I came to the Rockefeller Foundation, I had been hired to work in arts administration for an art school in Florence, Italy at the Institute of International Education. And speaking of mentors, my first mentor there was Teresa Granza, who was the head of the Fulbright program, where I eventually worked on the Africa desk. And she's still a friend of mine today. I love Teresa and she's taught me almost every practical thing that I know and a very practical approach to operations. But from that job, working on the Africa desk of the Fulbright program, I got a call to come to the Rockefeller Foundation and work for the Africa program there. And I was initially hired by Joyce Mook, who's another great mentor of mine. She's a PhD in agricultural economics and a legend in grants programming in Africa. Very smart person. And she hired me to manage a PhD program that was offering fellowship support for dissertation research in Africa for African PhD students enrolled in North American universities. So that's a big mouthful. But I was in that position for three years. And it, 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 during that time, we did a 10-year review of the program and its accomplishments, which were many. But the conclusion we drew is that the funding would be better spent supporting African students in African universities and developing the university departments and their research. And so as we wound down that program, I was asked to shift over to the senior vice president's office as a project manager, supporting strategic planning and evaluation of programs. I can only imagine that was an incredibly rewarding experience involved in such impactful programs. Was it during your time at the Rockefeller Foundation that you decided to return to college to do an MBA? Yes. And initially, I was thinking I was going to go to law school, and I did well on the LSATs. I got into several excellent programs, but then I took a look at the student loans, and I just couldn't figure out a way to make the math work. And so I decided I needed to pursue a graduate degree while I was still working, and several of my colleagues at the Rockefeller Foundation were going to law school at night and working during the day. It was a four-year program, very hard to do. And so after soul searching, I decided I was going to pursue an MBA instead. 
it was a great decision because going to school at night while working in the day in strategic planning and operations and project management, I was able to apply everything I was learning at night the next day. And so I feel like I retained a lot more from those studies than I did from any of my other degrees. I'm sure that was an incredibly busy period in your life, working a full-time job and doing an MBA at night over the course of a few years. And as you said, I can only imagine the, the practical learnings and benefits that you got out of that that you could apply the very next day. When you think back now, what were the biggest things you took away from the MBA which have benefited your career development? I wish I could pinpoint one thing, but the answer is everything. The strategic planning, the negotiation, the macro and microeconomics, the finance, the every single thing that I learned in business school, I continue to draw upon in my job today. It was a very practical toolkit and I'm glad I did it. There, there was nothing that was extraneous or that I haven't used since then. I'm interested Anne, to understand how you then found your way into the world of legal operations at, at Viacom. So Alex, after I finished my MBA, I realized that if I wanted to give corporate life a try, that it was a good juncture to do so. And initially I went over to, as the chief operating officer for executive education at Columbia Business School for a one year transformation project. But the entire time I was there, I was thinking about those conversations that I'd had with my dad about legal operations being an opportunity to transform the business of law for the 21st century. And I decided that I wanted to give that a try. So I started information interviewing with people and I met a woman named Nancy Beaulieu who was the legal administrator at King and Spalding in New York. And she told me about this organization called the Association of Legal Administrators. And while I didn't know it at the time, I later learned that ALA had been founded in 1971 by Brad Hildebrandt and his colleagues to start creating a conversation around this nascent field. So somehow I finagled my way into the 2007 national conference without being a member or having any professional experience. And I met a lot of people. And then I followed up with every single person I met for an information interview. And I made a real pest of myself. That has always been the case in this field. Everyone was very kind, very forthcoming very helpful to me. And I had a conversation with Paul Bellows, who is a terrific COO. And he introduced me to the recruiter who introduced me to Viacom. And luckily it was a good match. So that's how I landed at Viacom, persistence. Persistence, that's a great lesson for aspiring legal ops professionals. I think the community is obviously far larger today. But building those relationships, building those networks, persistence, obviously was incredibly important for your first step into the space. Your dad obviously knew what legal operations was back in 2007, but it wasn't a well understood term, correct, in the, the wider industry? Not at all. The, the term of art at the time was legal administrator. 
hence the professional association, the Association of Legal Administrators. And my understanding at the time when I started work at Viacom and started speaking with other people is that there were fewer than 50 people in a full-time legal operations role in North American corporate law departments. Gosh, so, I would have been surprised if there was even 50 at that point in time. And what were your core areas of focus at Viacom? Well, I was very lucky to be working for Mike Frickless, the Viacom general counsel, and Mark Morrill, who was Mike's deputy general counsel. Mark had been the general counsel of Simon & Schuster before it was acquired by Viacom. And the two of them were visionary about the role of legal operations. Mark gave me a great deal of cover and tactical advice, and Mike never fell short on big ideas. And so for that reason, we were a great team. When I landed at Viacom, they were in the midst of a matter management deployment that had gone sideways. And so shortly after I arrived, we had to make the decision to exit the contract, regroup, and um, go with another provider. And that was my big first project. I was lucky that on that project, Viacom had hired Huron, the legal consulting firm at the time, and we had what was the X-Men of consulting teams. It was Kevin Clem, who is now the chief commercial officer at HBR. It was Robin Snazdell, who's now a managing director at Concilio. It was Joy Safla, who's now, I think, at Moray. I hope I don't have that wrong. And Nancy Jessen, who founded a lot of the legal operations work at United Lex. So I was plunged straight into a team of experts who taught me everything I needed to know and helped me along the way. So that may have served as a mini legal ops MBA in and of itself. Exactly, exactly. And the CLM, the ALA has a certified legal manager program and the New York City Education Committee took me under their wing and gave me a lot of tutorials as well, enabling me to become certified in that field. So I I was surrounded on all fronts by people who'd come before me and who knew what they were doing and gave me cover for not knowing what I was doing, but interested in figuring it out. And one of the challenges, Anne, for me, having somebody like yourself, who was one of the first people in legal ops before it was legal ops on the podcast, who's been working in the space for for almost 15 years, is trying to condense all of your learnings and all of your knowledge into a less than an hour interview. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, in your seven years at Viacom, what projects do you think had the biggest impact? Well, certainly that matter management system, because we had soft savings of over $24 million in the first 18 months of that project. But beyond that, what the platform gave us was a platform for making a lot of other changes. So we were able to establish a global legal services provider program. We budgeted every matter. We had a large number of fixed fee or fixed fee by matter or phase projects. 
we transformed the relationship between finance and the legal department at Viacom. It was very fraught when I got there and they spent lots of time trying to reconcile different data sets. And by the time I left Viacom, we would have quarterly 30 minute conversations that were delegated down to four core people. When I arrived, there would be, there'd be these huge formal meetings with 10 people on either side of the table and very tense conversations. But by the end, we were all looking at the same reports. We all understood what was going on and we'd have a 30 minute touch base and move on with our day. So I think that the finance transformation of the relationship the establishment of a market-leading global legal services program and the matter management system, which at the time was the largest of its kind. It was in 24 countries. We integrated with a dozen financial systems. We were shortly thereafter dwarfed by AIG's mammoth matter management project, but at the time it was considered large. And those are massive achievements and at a time when there wasn't the same knowledge available in the wider industry about how to solve some of these problems. And do you think there was a heavy dependence on the matter management system and the success of the kind of the spend management program in improving the relationship with finance? Was one kind of connected with the other heavily? Absolutely. And in fact, Viacom hired an outside consultant to create a center of excellence at Viacom. And at the request of the CFO, they came to legal to look at our legal services program. And they ultimately concluded that our rates were 24% below industry benchmarks. And I had a long list of things I wanted to do with the center of excellence. And I was very disappointed that they told me they had larger problems to solve. We were too well run and that maybe they'd circle back to us in three to four years to do some of those things that I wanted to get done. So I, I lost my spear. I was hoping to have them be the tip of my spear, and I wasn't able to get it done. You were a victim of your own success, Anne, it sounds like. Um, we were a victim of our own success, yes. I think you were one of the first people I met in the legal operations community. I can't recall, Anne, if we first met. Were you at the first clock conference in San Francisco? Yeah, yes. I think we, we met there and then I, I had moved to New York and I, I think I, I ran into you at a few different events there over the years and you were always incredibly helpful. But I'm interested to understand that was kind of 2015, 2016. But, but when did you start to get involved with the emerging legal operations community? And I know you've just been a pillar within it. Uh, one of the most experienced people in, in the U.S. more generally and certainly on the East Coast? Well, we've already talked about my experience with ALA. And when I arrived at Viacom, Mike Frickless, was, our GC, was talking with Susan Hackett, who was then the general counsel of ACC. Yeah. And she was talking about pulling together a legal operations group within ACC. So because of them, I was invited to join ACC as one of their first non-lawyer members. And that was a great group of about 20 or 30 companies where we met quarterly and discussed various initiatives we had going on. And to be honest, I basically cribbed 
every project I did at Viacom is something I learned in that room and then went back and executed on something that someone else before me had done at their company. And maybe we did it differently and maybe I got to learn from their experience, but a lot of it was repurposing work that was already out there in the field. And the Huron offered a great user group and there were emerging regional groups, Jeff Isaacs and Mike Kaplan, in New York, we're running a New York area corporate legal operations group that was mostly finance groups. And so I got to participate in those groups and meet a lot of people. Then Clock at the time, which was a book club and informal group on the West Coast, reached out to the East Coast group and invited us to join some phone calls with them. And that was my first introduction to Clock, which of course is now the largest legal operations professional organization we have today. And after your success at, at Viacom, what attracted you to the role at Harman? Well, at Harman, a recruiter reached out to me and introduced me to Todd Succo. And Todd Succo was the general counsel of Harmon, and I'm a big Todd Succo fan. He is smart, multi-talented lawyer and a pilot. And I was also interested in Harmon, which was founded by Sydney Harmon. And I think we're all familiar with their products through Harmon, JBL, and AKG. And what I didn't know until I was introduced to the company is they are also one of the largest companies in informatics, which is essential to auto driving cars because their systems are in one in four cars on the road today around the world. So it was an interesting company and, and Todd was a great leader. And so that's what attracted me to Harman from Viacom. And it sounds like you had that alignment we talk about between yourself and the general counsel. Were there things you did differently the second time around scaling legal ops at Harman? Absolutely. You know, each company and leader has different priorities and a different way of doing things. So for example, at Viacom, I told you our first project was that big matter management system. Harman already had a matter management system in place. And they had different problems in the budget conversations with their finance teams, but they had a little ring of familiarity. So we did implement budgeting every single matter at Harmon, for example. So there were a lot of things that were similar, but there were also a lot of things that were very different. As you know, I founded legal operations at three different companies, and I often summarize it as, at Viacom, my focus was finance. At Harmon, my focus was compliance. And at Hearst, my focus thus far has been technology. And could you elaborate then, Anne, on that focus on compliance and what that means for a legal operations leader? Well, in, in my case, Harmon produced a lot of products. And so there were a lot of requirements with respect to supplier compliance that were not operating as smoothly as they could. And so we redesigned the supplier due diligence process. We had to institute conflicts mineral assessments at the parts level, right? Because we were manufacturing goods. 
So there is a lot to do in that department, a lot of things on sustainability and ESG. I was part of the Sustainability Council. And it was really interesting for me because again, things I had no background and expertise in, but I had the support of leadership and I brought curiosity and ability to listen and learn from the experts and to, to bring some practical operational knowledge to the table. A lot of which I had gotten at Viacom when they gave us permission to get Six Sigma certified. And so I did have that Six Sigma training, which I have found very practical and helpful along the way. And I think it's one of the wonderful things about building a legal operations function. Like number one, as you say, it has to start with what are the businesses key objectives, what is the general counsel and legal leadership's key objectives, but so many different things can fall within legal operations as a function. Would you say it's reasonably rare for, for compliance in the way that you had it at Harman sitting with legal operations? I don't think so. I, I think it really varies by company and the way they're structured. And I would say, you know, I'd guess at least 30% of the Fortune 500 have compliance sitting within legal. At Viacom, it sat within legal too, but there was a chief compliance officer who had his own team. So that wasn't an area I touched at Viacom, but it was still under legal, one of the primary lines of business. And yes, that tended to be my experience is that mm -hmm. while it might sit within legal, there might be a dedicated compliance ops team, but, yep. but for legal ops to have it within your your region. Oh, I see. No, I think um, Harman, because it's a much smaller company, it made sense that they were going to have fewer lines of specialization and I needed to be, you know, a generalist with more different threads under my belt. And I think as you highlighted, having those kind of the core skill set, Six Sigma, for instance, enables you presumably to kind of immerse yourself in an area like compliance and figure out what processes, policies, systems need, need to be put in place. And I think, you know, there are 12 pillars that Clock has identified to legal operations and none of us can be an expert in all of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the important thing I think is to understand what two or three that you're able to focus on and build an expertise in, and then identifying people you can partner with who are the subject matter experts and that you can be an informed generalist partnering with them to get things done. I think I, I learned that early on at the Rockefeller Foundation, where I was working with some of the leading experts worldwide in health and agriculture and education. I was never going to match their expertise, but I could develop enough knowledge to have an informed conversation with them. And I think that's the approach that you have to take in legal operations. I think that's such incredible advice. And if we move on to your third, third time round at Hearst, scaling a legal ops function, what, what does that legal ops team look like now, almost five years later? And, and to that point, of that, do you have kind of specific experts in particular areas owning elements of it for you? Well, we are a small but mighty ops squad, as we call ourselves. And so I have a senior manager, Jessica Williams, who is the manager of the Global Legal Services Program. And she is also an expert in Onnit, where we are now extending the functionality to be client facing. So she's taking on more of our internal client relationship work and is our principal 
connection with finance with whom we partner closely. And then I have Tony Cherm, who's a technology specialist, knows a lot about system administration for iManage, a lot about how our software works, a lot about APIs. Then we have two part-time people on our team. One is a full-time billing specialist named Wendy Alfano. And then we have Rebecca Feliciano, who is an assistant to our CLO and also has recently completed her first course of study at PMI and is developing as a project coordinator and helping us out part-time on that front. And I'm trying to recruit a full-time projects manager. If you're interested, please give me a call. It's a very tight job market right now, but Hearst is a great place to work. Well, there you go. We'll make sure to, to reference that when we post the podcast uh, <laughs> that you are hiring. And I think no better person for somebody to, to work with and, and learn from in the industry. And it certainly sounds like a very mighty legal operations team. You've given back yourself to the ecosystem. You've developed ops in a box. What, what prompted you to do that? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. I had been on an ACC boots camp at their national conference, and Dan Young and I had presented on strategic planning at that conference. And in the boot camp, the feedback we got from a number of the smaller organizations was, you know, this information is all well and good, but I'm one person or I'm two people and I don't have time to learn all of this and to navigate the ecosystem to pull out what I need. I just need to know what I need to know to get this task done tomorrow and move on with my day. And so that happened just as I was leaving Harmon to come to Hearst. And it helped me realize that I wasn't starting from scratch at Hearst, that I had developed a lot of materials, for example, the matter budget materials, at Viacom, I had refined them at Harmon and I would be taking them with me to Hearst. And so that gave me the idea that that's what this group needs. They need something to jumpstart their legal operations journey where they can open the digital kit and pull out what they need to get the job done. And then once they get it done with some breathing room, hopefully they'll have more opportunities to navigate the clock or the ALA or ACC ecosystem to learn more and personalize it and make it their own. But with Ops in a Box, you can have the kit. All you have to do is add your branding, plug in your information. We give you guidance on how to do that and you can get your job done and move on to the next thing. I think it's a great idea and a kind of a very practical tool, as you say, it is impossible for a, a modern legal ops professional to be an expert in every functional area. And I think it is a great initiative and, and really useful, practical tool for people who are undertaking specific projects. Outside of the world of legal ops, I have kind of two final questions I want to get to. First one, in the context of a young professional who's thinking about a career in legal operations, what advice would you give to them? Well, I think the first thing is what I mentioned a little earlier, which is that there are 
multiple pillars in legal operations and you should choose one or two or maximum three that you want to learn more about and build your expertise in and focus on those. Don't get overwhelmed by the volume and breadth of information out there. And then be curious and listen and feel comfortable partnering with subject matter experts, but have the confidence that as you learn from them that you have enough information to act and go forward. Great advice. And I was only speaking to Latrice Johnson, who leads legal operations at Palo Alto Networks on the podcast recently. And, and she made that point that her point of entry into legal operations was because she had a strong finance background and that made it easier to transition into a specific role with that as the main point of focus initially, focusing on kind of budgeting for the department. Final question for me, Anne. What do you enjoy doing in any spare time that you do have, given how busy you are? What, what do you enjoy doing when you're not scaling legal ops? My husband is a professional magician. So when I'm not at Hearst, I'm frequently working for him as a company manager with his magic company. And we recently returned from a gig in Italy, which was loads of fun. We live with a 30-year-old parrot named Stubby, and we like to spend time with him. Stubby is a Foley artist and also a demolition specialist. And he enjoys watching movies, eating at outdoor cafes, and we enjoy doing those things with him. I imagine there's never a dull moment at home. And maybe at some point in the future, you might be kind enough to join us again on the podcast. I think we could spend another few hours talking and we, we might even see if Stubby could join us to say hello as well. Yes, I would like that. Thank you, Alex. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. This was fun. Thanks so much, Em. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.